Welcome back to Year of Vesuvius, Episode 4. If you visit the Naples Museum of Archaeology, you may come across the Minologia Rustica. It's a four-sided hunk of stone measuring 654 centimeters in height, 410 in width, each side devoted to three months of the year. For each month, we get the number of days, the knowns, that is, the day of the moon's first quarter, the daylight hours, the nighttime hours, the zodiac sign, what gods rule the month, what agricultural tasks are to be accomplished, and the critical religious obligations. If you visit the Naples Archaeological Museum, you may come across the Menologia Rustica, it's a four-sided hunk of stone measuring 654 centimeters in height, 410 in width, each side devoted to three months of the year. For each month, we get the number of days, the knowns, that is, the day of the moon's first quarter. For each month, we get the number of days, the knowns, that is, the day of the moon's first quarter. The daylight hours, the nighttime hours, the zodiac sign, what gods rule the month, what agricultural tasks are to be accomplished, and the critical religious obligations. So, for January, 31 days. The knowns fall on the fifth day. The day has nine and three-quarter hours. The night has fourteen and one-quarter hour. The sun is in the sign of Capricorn. The month is under the protection of Juno. Stakes are sharpened. Willow and reeds are cut. Sacrifices to the household gods. Survival of ancient artifacts is always a matter of chance, and more lost and gone forever than not. Indeed, the stone had a twin discovered like it in the 16th century, and now lost again. This object is unusual in its uniqueness. You can burn marble to make lime, useful as mortar and clean whitewash, which is one reason we have so few marble statues left. You can melt bronze to make weapons, which is one reason we have so few bronze statues left. You can repurpose stone for building, but moving stone long distances is difficult and expensive, and a stone like this was probably not intended for city use. Scholars have dated the stone to the mid to late 1st century A.D., so about our time. The question arises, who is the intended audience? Who commissioned it? Who bought it? And why? The information is incidental, likely known to the practiced farmer, and all but useless. It seems less a practical tool than a bit of useful decoration, a garden ornament along the lines of a sundial, or even just a plaster garden gnome, showing your connection to the soil and your ability to read. Perhaps a gift for the farmer or overseer who has everything and needs nothing? Was it a welcome addition to the farm, or just another thing hanging around? To a serious person, the stone appears fundamentally unserious. The Romans took agriculture very seriously, as any pre-industrial society must, then, as now, farming allows little room for error, still less of inattention. Each season, each month, has its requirements. 
The rhythms are more or less regular. The subtle and obvious signs that triggered the month's actions were passed down orally from father to son. With Hesiod, circa 750 to 650 BC, in Greece, the common wisdom was made memorable by poetry, eventually committed to papyrus. Later Romans, practical men, committed their observations to prose works, how-to manuals for the careful farmer, breaking down the yearly tasks month by month. Earliest of these, earliest of all surviving Latin works, in fact, was De Agricultura by Marcus Cato, a.k.a. Cato the Elder. A grim sort of fellow, by all accounts, and his portraits back that up. Cato is a figure of some fun and a little horror for moderns who see things differently than he did. Born in 234 B.C. in Tusculum in the Latium Hills, plebeian stock, his intelligence and sheer energy were recognized early, and he was sponsored in Rome for a political career. He was a Noah's homo, a new man, not patrician, which may have shaped some of his attitudes. At a time when other Romans were aping the newly intimidated Greeks by wearing fancy clothes and dipping into Greek literature, Cato insisted on good old Roman plain-spun wool. What was good enough for the old folk was good enough for him. In his role as senator, he ended each speech with the injunction, Cartago delenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. Why? Precaution. You can't trust those people. And they're far too close to Rome. Was the Senate not aware that a fig plucked from a Carthaginian orchard could arrive days later and still fresh in Rome? He happened to have a few on hand, if anyone would care to check. That Carthage had already lost two wars against Rome and was now little more than the old city and immediate environs did not matter to Cato. He had served in the army and, for whatever reason, seemed to think that anything less than 100% annihilation was unacceptable, an uncompromising attitude that has caused a good deal of unhappiness over the centuries. Carthage was indeed destroyed three years after Cato's death. Rome then realized that the location was prime, and in short order and at some expense, built it back up, reopened under new management. Much more can be said of Cato. His moralizing is now lost first at Roman history, and he's well worth investigating. But our topic is agriculture. To return to his book, which begins, It is true that to obtain money by trade is sometimes more profitable, were it not so hazardous, and likewise money lending, if it were as honorable. Our ancestors held this view and embodied it in their laws, which required that the thief must be mulcted double and the user fourfold how much less desirable a citizen they considered the user than the thief one may judge from this. And when they would praise a worthy man, their praise took this form, good husbandman, good farmer. One so praised was thought to have received the greatest commendation. The trader I consider to be an energetic man and one bent on making money. 
But, as I said above, it is a dangerous career and one subject to disaster. On the other hand, it is from the farming class that the bravest men and sturdiest soldiers come. Their calling is most highly respected, their livelihood is most assured, and is looked on with the least hostility, and those who are engaged in that pursuit are least inclined to be disaffected. He then dives right into the practical matters of how to judge potential farmland. Cato is no dilettante gentleman farmer sitting on a terrace and gazing down on sweating field hands. By his own account, at least, he didn't hesitate to work shoulder to shoulder with his slaves to get the most out of the land. He also had brutal advice on how to make the enterprise pay, famously advising fellow landowners to rid themselves of any human capital that could no longer pull its weight. He was also a great advocate of the humble cabbage, attributing to it all sorts of good qualities that would make a snake oil salesman blush. Ironically, much of what he says he got directly from Pythagoras, a Greek he for once did not despise. The curious are directed to De Agricultura, 156. Cato was followed in the how-to book business by Marcus Terentius Varro, 116-27 B.C., one of Rome's great polymaths, who wrote Rerum Rusticarum Libertres, and after him, Lucius Junius Moderatus Columella, 84-70, author of De Re Rustica. Each has its points. Columella is by far the most extensive and practical, it is worth noting that all three authors wrote other works on very different subjects. It is the practical manuals, however, that survived in numbers large enough to come down to us, which gives us an idea of what really mattered to the Romans. So, what's informer to do in January? Besides sharpening those stakes and cutting those willows and reeds as mentioned on the stone. For starters, all agree that the land must not be touched. Gaius Julius Hyginus, 64 B.C. to A.D. 17, a man of the stars as much as of the soil, advised winemakers to strain and even rack off wine at the seventh day after the winter solstice, provided that the moon is seven days old. Back in the fields, dead wood and vines were to be cut back and burned, making way for new shoots come spring. Acorns should be soaked in water and used as cattle fodder. Amodius, about a peck, or 8.73 liters, per pair, no less than 30 days in succession, but no more. January was also the time to plant cherry trees, once native to the Black Sea, and imported to Rome by soldier and gourmand Lucullus in 74 B.C., still novel enough to be coveted. Also rose bushes, greatly appreciated by the Romans. Nero, in particular, had a liking for them. The dining room in his golden house was so constructed as to allow rose petals to be cast down from the ceiling on his appreciative guests. Horace, Epodes 1.2, describes how when thundering Jove brings rain and snow, the farmer sets his dogs to drive the fierce boars into preset traps, 
or spreads his thin nets on the smooth pole to catch the hungry thrushes, or catches in his snares the timorous hare or migrating crane. And there were some special gods to propitiate. Talus, a.k.a. Talus Mater, Gaia, Cybele, to begin with. She was subject to not one but three days, January 24 through 26, of thanksgiving for past harvests and prayers for more of the same in the upcoming year. Sidifo called it one of the Feriae Sementivae, country folk the Paganalia. All took it seriously. Anything else? The plowman hammers out the hard tooth of the blunted share, scoops troughs from trees, or sets a brand upon his flocks and labels upon his corn heaps. Others sharpen stakes and two-pronged forks, or make bands of Amerian willows for the limber vine. Now let the pliant basket be woven in briar twigs. Now roast corn by the fire. Now grind it on the stone. Even on holy days, the laws of God and man permit you to do certain tasks. This from Virgil, whose Georgics and Eclogues go full circle back to Hesiod and dole out farming advice in verse. Virgil was likely born and raised on an estate near Mantua in 70 BC, son of an equestrian, that is to say, a comfortably rich, moneyed enough to get a solid education in arts and letters at an early age. As a country boy, he had seen seasons pass and men at work. How much he got his own hands dirty is another matter. That said, the four books of his Georgics make clear that he had a good deal of practical knowledge on the challenges of running an agricultural concern. Virgil is best remembered for the Aeneid, Rome's answer to the Odyssey. His view is wide, recognizing life's many sides. Among his quotes is Amor Omnia Winket, Virgil, Eclogues 10.69, the dying words of the lovesick Gallus, disappointed in his passion for the actress and courtesan Lycoris. Love conquers all things. The phrase, extracted from its tragic setting, sounds encouraging, if perhaps naive. It's the sort of thing you see engraved on decorative stones and flower gardens and gift shops from time to time. Modern gardens and gift shops, that is. By the way, for the purists out there, yes, I know, Virgil wrote Omnia Winket Amor, but the inverted Amor Omnia Winket is common usage, and that's how we're going. Elsewhere, in his Georgics 1.146, the more hard-headed Virgil writes Labor Omnia Wicket, which phrase appears on many school mottos, and perhaps stones as well, if less often than its happier sibling phrase, and is usually translated as work, hard work is implied, achieves all things. The motto makers stop short of the all-important next word, improbus. Improbus is a word with so many definitions, none of them nice, that over a third of a page of the Oxford Latin Dictionary is required to dissect them all. Unceasing will have to do with overtones of grim excess. Thus, labor omnia wicet improbus, unrelenting toil conquered everything. 
Also, by the way, the model makers generally substitute the word weekit, past tense, with winket, present tense. This matters. Virgil is writing about an earlier, unhappier age, before the arrival of Augustus, an age when man was born to unrelenting, oppressive labor and might as well get used to it. Much like the Red Queen and Alice, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Virgil elsewhere uses the metaphor of a rowboat heading upriver. Down oars to rest, and it's down river for you. Not something everyone wants to hear, though Gata would have nodded. Virgil's audience, an urban elite who lived off the proceeds of large estates, little involved in the back-breaking work that farming requires, may have had a limited appetite for such talk, and the Georgics go on to suggest that with the coming of Augustus, those bad days are gone. You can see his motivation. So long as Virgil depended on their patronage, best to ignore the less pleasant realities and serve up some comforting fiction. Thus, winter is the farmer's lazy time. In cold weather, farmers chiefly enjoy their gains and feast together in merry companies. Winter's cheer calls them and loosens the weight of care. Elsewhere, Virgil describes the fortunate existence for these dim, if ungrateful, sons of the soil. Joyful beyond measure could they but know their blessings. For them, far from the clash of arms, most righteous earth, unbidden, pours forth from her soil an easy sustenance. That's a bit much by anyone's standards. Virgil's playing up the city dweller's sentimental view of country life is echoed by Horace, whose Epode 1.2 is the chatty reverie of Alphaeus, an urban money lender who goes on at some length extolling the attractions of the country life, where a man can be happy with simple food and a stolid farm wife, better than the most extravagant food that our money lender is presumably very familiar with. In the end, Alpheus cuts short his reverie and gets back to the business of calling in current debts and lending the proceeds on future obligations. Worth noting, by the way, that Horace's father had been a slave and later as a free man, a money lender. Easy to imagine Horace having heard something of this kind while growing up. This romantic view is hardly unique to ancient Romans. Marie Antoinette had the same vision and realized it in the Amo de la Reine at Versailles. Ungenerous people liked to mock her for playing at being a milkmaid, though to be fair, the Amo was a working farm, self-sustaining, and intended, at least in part, to teach her children a thing or two about life's realities. All that lovely French cuisine that appeared every night on the table didn't just show up by magic any more than that slice of prime rib did not just appear in the grocery store. Every plate of food has a history, often enough pretty rough. And what about us? The banker Alphaeus would fit right in with many a modern office worker whose dream it is to chuck the job, buy a small vineyard in the south of France, or an olive grove in Tuscany and have a go. 
Putting the dream into action is a staple of many books and movies and memoirs, generally played for fish-out-of-water comedy. Wide-eyed, lifelong urban dweller endures various pratfalls and learning the hard ropes. There's a reason why the small estates in questions have been abandoned for years. Cultural differences baffle the protagonist, but are gradually accepted, understood, even embraced. Grapes or olives grow fat. Romance, either midlife or geriatric, blooms or reignites. Crop-threatening bad weather may loom, but is averted, or at least minimized. Harvest time arrives, all cast members pitch in, and eventually we end with a final shot, usually involving our hero or heroine or both, gathering his or her or their eccentric and or charming newfound rural neighbors on a picturesque stone veranda overlooking picturesque fields or perhaps beneath a starry summer night, all enjoying an appetizing all-organic meal, the farm table groaning with copious good food and wine, the happy sounds of chatting and laughing and goblets chinking, pan back slowly, fade to black, roll credits. As they say in the trade, this stuff writes itself. For all but the tiny few, this remains a dream or a date-night movie, if for no other reason than that the practical lobes of the brain know full well that farming is a stressful, uncertain, exhausting, often costly way to make a living, and a good way to lose a nest egg. Praise farmers all you like, and you should, you really should. But the reality is tough. Cato wasn't wrong in pairing farmers with the best soldiers. It is a calling, a compulsion even, and like marriage, is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in fear of God. Or gods, in the case of the Romans. To the extent that the ancient Romans, or at least the class that wrote about such things, men like Cicero, who bought much land and said nice things about the rural life, they did so more as a gentleman farmer or business titan with a vineyard might today. It is easy to imagine our man Alpheus, or even Cicero, running up to the country estate for a weekend, perhaps with the newly bought Menologia Rustica to add a little decoration to the old place, get one in the mood for farm living, and once arrived, see above the story writes itself. Let's just say that it is difficult to picture the toga-clad barrister Cicero, or well-rewarded poet Horace, or the coin-counting Alphaeus rising before dawn, picking up a shovel and mucking out horse stalls. Grabby old Cato the Elder, sure, he would have been right there along with the family members and slaves, but that later generation, not so much. We leave the dreamers to their dreams and the real farmers to their January willow cutting and stick sharpening and animal catching. Next time, back to the city and a day at the races. The Ludi Palatini, the Palatine Games, in honor of Augustus. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>